Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. When America endeavors to tackle an ambitious project, we often speak in terms of moonshots or a Manhattan Project for X. The assumption is that vast government resources directed towards some objective can yield results on the scale of the moon landing or the atom bomb. But federal research funding is more complicated than throwing dollars at our problems. And with Congress poised to inject American science policy with an adrenaline shot of funding, I've brought Tony Mills back on political economy to discuss the bills working their way through the House and Senate. Tony is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies the federal government's role in scientific research and innovation, as well as how to integrate scientific expertise into our governing institutions. Tony, welcome back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I was under the impression that the United States was about to embark upon a, uh, a great period of federal science research, that because of, I guess, secondarily years of uh, subpar productivity growth, and maybe more primarily sort of the China threat, that we were just going to start throwing money at R&D. Is that going to happen? Doesn't seem like it's happened yet, but is that going to happen? Well, that's a good question. I mean, you know, there's to a certain extent, it requires predicting uh, political events, which is a hazardous game. Um, you know, I think if we back up a little bit, what we can say is there was this, this push um, really picked up in 2020. Um, interestingly, sort of before COVID really took off. Um, and so the best example of this was the Endless Frontier Act, which was uh, uh, Chuck Schumer's bill. It was a bipartisan bill um, introduced in the Senate in 2020. It was very ambitious. And among its uh, ambitious proposals was a $100 billion investment in the National Science Foundation and a considerable, considerable sort of reorganization of that agency. Um, fast forward to today, that bill passed the Senate, um, but it is currently still being negotiated with the House whether or not um, anything like that will come to pass. Now, it looks like, um, so what happened in the meantime is the House introduced its own version of this bill, um, and there were some important differences between them. And there's been kind of a back and forth debate about um, really what we need to do um, over the past few years. Um, and that's kind of still where we are. Um, it looks like Congress is hoping to pass something by this summer. Um, so it could turn out that a version of this bill will in fact uh, pass, but it's a very different kind of bill than what was originally introduced. Uh, it's also considerably uh, less ambitious in terms of its, its budgetary targets. Just uh, uh, to recap, because it can be confusing, is we have two bills and both would spend I think maybe 80 billion or so on, on research. Uh, I think, and, and again, you can correct me on all these that the, the House bill would spend it a little bit more like how we traditionally spend money in this country, a lot, you know, mostly on kind of basic research, less on sort of more directed or applied research. Maybe you want to explain what that even means. 
And then the Senate bill is different. It would spend money on basic research, but it would also have this sort of technology directorate and it would and it would uh, focus on especially on certain key sectors as selected by government AI or biotech high performance uh, computing. So we have two bills maybe about the same size but a little different focus. Correct. Although I would, I would, I would complicate it a little bit further. Good, so, good. Please uh, complicate the Senate, it. <laughs> the Senate bill. Um, yes, you're correct. Um, it really had two uh, in its original form. Had two principal focus focuses. One was this 100 billion dollar um, investment in the National Science Foundation to create a tech directorate within the NSF. So the NSF traditionally. Uh, is the agency that funds basic scientific research. It's the only agency in the federal government whose sole mission really is to do that. A lot of other agencies do fund basic scientific research, which is a term, it's a controversial term, but roughly means you know research that is uh, directed at advancing our understanding rather than you know building technology, inventing uh, medical devices. Uh, or something like that. So more sort of curiosity-driven research is one way people will describe it. That's what the NSF does. Uh, it was created to do that in 1950. It does more than that, but that's it's still its primary purpose. The vast majority of its research bu budget goes to basic research. Now, the Senate bill, um, I, I should add one more, one more thing about that from the history. Um, one of the issues that was hotly debated in the lead up to the creation of the NSF was how to allocate federal funding. Um, should it be allocated meritocratically, give the federal uh, spending to the best science, the best institutions, or should it be distributed geographically? There was some precedent for doing that in the federal government. The uh, Department of Agriculture's experiment stations, for example, are in each state. Uh, and so the thought was, should we just distribute uh, federal research um, geographically, you know, for sort of political uh, reasons, um, or should we just give it to the best scientists? Uh, the meritocratic view more or less won out in 1950, and the NSF has essentially operated on some version of that. There are exceptions and so forth. But, um, what's interesting about the Senate bill, the Endless Frontier Act that came out in 2020, is that its two central pillars were sort of the contradiction of both of those things. Um, it was a geography-based innovation program, um, which is a, they propose a regional tech hub program to try to build up innovation in areas that are traditionally less competitive in, in science and technology. And then the other was this tech directorate, which as you note, would be keyed into uh, strategic areas of technology that would you know be updated every, uh, you know, five or 10 years, I don't remember specifically, but areas like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, uh, uh, green technology, and so on and so forth. Um, and so these are, it's, what's notable about this is that this would be quite a change for NSF, right? Not only in terms of its budget, um, which is under $10 billion. Um, so the original proposal was 100 billion and it would all go to this new directorate. So it radically- is, is that 100 billion, that's, is that per year or over a number of years? Over five years. Now that was the uh, original plan. It's been considerably whittled down since then. The Now the directorate would re receive something more like 29 billion, still substantial. Um, so what would that increase its budget per year? Uh, I believe the idea was uh, in the original proposal over five years, th this investment would be would be divvied out. Uh, and the current version 
Um, I don't recall the specifics of how, how it would break down, but through the course of the political debate over this bill, the, the ambitions for the budget were kind of whittled down because funding went over here, DOE got into the mix and became kind of a, a political uh, mess in a lot of ways. Um, what was interesting about that bill was, it was called the Endless Frontier Act, which is a reference to uh, the report, The Endless Frontier, which is written by Vannevar Bush, FDR science advisor and the head of federal research during World War II. Um, that sort of was the blueprint, the constitution for the NSF. Um, and so I just note the irony that it was called this, but it was really in contradiction to sort of the spirit of, of Bush's vision. Um, I think it took Congress by surprise that the scientific community was not altogether happy with this bill. It's a huge amount of money, um, but because of the uh, emphasis on this sort of technology or directed research, uh, the way in which this could radically change the institution of NSF, there was actually some pushback. Um, and it turned out to be more controversial than I think anybody was expecting. Meanwhile, the House introduced a, a, a rival bill. This uh, was the NSF for the Future Act, which was more responsive to the scientific community's view of what of what should happen. Which, so as you say, uh, the, it, there would be a new directorate um, with a different name. It would focus on science and engineering. Um, now, it would also be geared toward um, technological uh, competitiveness, right? So, so use-inspired basic research um, that is, you know, trying to bridge the gap between scientific research and technological innovation. Um, but it would be kind of within the the, the traditional operations of the NSF. There are other differences that we can talk about. Um, so that is kind of where things were a few years ago. What's become even more complicated is that the Endless Frontier Act was rolled into a larger, much uh, sort of more sprawling uh, bill, the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, USICA, as, as it's known, um, which does a lot, a lot of things, not just science policy. Um, meanwhile, the House rolled its uh, various science agency reauthorizations into its own large sprawling bill, the Competes Act, which also does a lot more than science policy. Um, There's some trade stuff in these bills. Some, uh, I, I mean, I've heard these bills called the CHIPS bills because we're going to try to you know, promote domestic semiconductor manufacturing. Yep. Uh, so, right. So much uh, sprawling is probably the best word. Right? And so I, I would say that's the common denominator. Um, so competition with China is a big issue for both, maybe a little bit more on the Senate bill, and trying to beef up um, strategic areas of uh, domestic industry, areas of technology, um, particularly semiconductors. They both do that in different ways. Um, but they also do a lot of other things too. The Senate bill was passed bipartisan, a lot of support. The House bill was passed almost entirely on partisan lines because there were objections to all these ride-alongs that got in there that had really nothing to do with science or even technology policy. Um, and so now Congress is in a negotiation to try to reconcile these two things. Meanwhile, uh, the administration uh, uh, proposed a number of its own um, R&D science technology policy proposals. Um, and of course, we've had um, budgetary uh, appropriations debates happening, happening separately. So in the meantime, um, there have been, um, you know, NSF funding has actually increased. Uh, and the agency decided to stand up. It, incre it increased through the basic budgetary process. Precisely. And not not by nearly as much as these bills would have done or, or still could do. 
Um, and also the NSF uh, sort of through its own initiatives stood up a new technology directorate. Uh, it's in the process of doing that right now. Uh, what that will look like is to be determined, uh, partly depending on what happens with the reconciliation process uh, between these two bills. So it's a, it's a very, it's a complicated situation. Support for basic curiosity-driven research that's not meant to solve a defined problem is fairly uncontroversial. But how far beyond that basic level of research should we go? How much direction from Washington is too much? So it's a good question. I think uh, I I would answer it, hopefully not by dodging it. I think there are two ways to understand the question, right? So one is, and it really turns on the ambiguity of these terms. Um, on the one hand, you could say basic research, curiosity-driven research is a sort of a commonsensical sounding thing, right? So just let scientists do what they what they do. Um, in practice, it's it's complicated to really define what we mean by that. Um, and it's also really rarely the case that scientists are ever doing whatever they want. I mean, they're highly dependent on external sources of funding, federal and other. Um, and so they, you know, they propose projects and they try to get funding on the project. What kinds of projects get funded are obviously partly uh, determined by what the agencies are interested in, what Congress is interested in, what, you know, other funding sources are providing funding are interested in. Um, so, you know, I think there is a, a, a genuine question about what it is we mean by these terms. Uh, it's not, it's not merely academic to, uh, to try to figure that out. Um, part of the problem is that when you use that term, it means different things to different people. So some people hear basic research and they think, you know, astronomy, um, you know, just trying to study the chemical composition of the star. You're, you're just adding generally to the stock of human knowledge. Exactly. But you might mean basic research. Oh, early stage research in a given technology area. Um, though, I mean, in, in different sectors, different, uh, uh, research communities will use these terms in different ways. Basic research means one thing in the medical community, means something else in the physical sciences, means something else in sort of uh, private industry. Um, so th the complications around that, I think, are actually not trivial. Um, but there's one way to, so let me try to, try to answer the question. I think one way to do it is to say, well, what fields should we be funding? Should we be funding the physical sciences? Should we be funding particular areas of engineering or uh, whatever. There's another way to hear the question, which is what is the government's proper role in the sort of broader science and technology ecosystem? Um, and I think often the debate about basic versus other kinds of research is kind of a proxy for that larger set of issues. And one of the problems to my mind is that when we talk about science and technology funding, we often talk as though the government's involvement is purely monetary, as though the, the sort of infrastructure that's been created uh, to fund science uh, by the federal government, and you know, again, we can talk about private industry too, but um, has no impact on the scientific community. And I think that's really quite wrong. There are a lot of problems within the scientific community that are arguably traceable to this sort of uh, massive sprawling enterprise that we have. Um, the bureaucratization of research, 
Um, the project-driven nature of science is something that a lot of scholars have, have pointed out as being problematic. Um, there's the replication crisis, which we could talk about, which I would argue is related to these things, where you have uh, a kind of drive to publish findings that may or may not really be that robust. Um, so there are a lot of issues. Um, and uh, so I think one of the ways that this debate plays out is in terms of how much um, sort of government control of science do we have or want? And that's separate from the question of which fields we should be funding, right? I mean, it could be the most promising developments are gonna be in biomedical science versus you know, material science. Um, that's, a, that's a hard question, right? To know which, you know which field we should prioritize. Let me ask the original question slightly differently. I often hear things like, well, we should do a super DARPA. That's how America should do its science R&D. Tell me a bit about the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. What does it do and what can we learn from it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So this kind of embodies the uh, ambiguity I was talking about, actually. So DARPA is an agency within the uh, Defense Department, uh, the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, Projects Agency. Uh, it was created in 1957 or 8, 58, I think, um, uh, in response to Sputnik. Um, and it is, by all accounts, I mean, it's changed over time. Uh, and you, there are different eras in DARPA's history that have, you know, some people think have been more productive than others. But I would say, by all accounts, it's been very successful. Um, and it's successful uh, at uh, seeding um, breakthrough technologies. And it does that. I, one of the ways it does this is it gives a lot of discretion to the um, to the to the uh, people within the agency who are in charge of the research programs to really just experiment and do kind of whatever they want. They have a lot of freedom, um, which is different than the way you know the traditional science agency might operate. Um, so because of that, a lot of people have exactly as you said. Uh, drawn the conclusion, well, why don't we imitate DARPA in, in, in other areas? Um, and so we actually have done that. There is an ARPA-E in the Department of Energy, for example, uh, modeled on DARPA. Um, one of the motivations behind the tech directorate in the Endless Frontier Act, I believe it says this in the text of the bill, was to create a DARPA-like entity within NSF. Um, and there has been, um, there have been proposals for a, a health ARPA, ARPA-H, which has recently become reality. Um, uh, the Biden administration uh, uh, um, essentially stood one up within NIH, has its own weird structure. One of the debates about creating these other ARPAs is, should they be standalone or should they be housed within other agencies? Um, if you house it within another agency, you take on a lot of the freight of that agency for better or worse. And one of the things that makes DARPA unique is its kind of independence. Um, so a lot of people have criticized the Biden administration's decision to put ARPA-H in NIH, although the director of ARPA-H would report directly to the HHS secretary to sort of bypass NIH in some way. Um, RPE is in DOE. Um, okay, so there are different kinds of models for thinking about that. Now, is it a good idea? I mean, I think it depends on what we're trying to do, right? Um, DARPA, is often used as an example of sort of uh, government, uh, a good example of government funding 
uh, basic research uh, effectively. But really, if you look at what DARPA does, and especially what, what RPE does, they don't really fund that much basic research. It's really, you know, if you think about research on a pipeline, which I think is not really the right way to do it, but people do all the time, um, you know, you kind of have basic research here, and then you have uh, commercial uh, development on, on the other side, and then sort of in between is a spectrum. Um, DARPA H is certainly, or excuse me, DARPA is certainly funding uh, early stage experimental research, but it's the idea is to build technologies, right? It's it's a it's a it's a military research agency whose purpose is to develop technologies that are useful. Um, ARPA E uh, is similar. The purpose is to is to develop technologies that are are you know useful for you know. Uh, in, in, uh, green technology, for instance, or other areas of energy. Um, and if you look at where they spend most of their money, it's kind of in the middle of, of, a, of the pipeline. It's sort of on the early stage commercial research type uh, uh, part of the spectrum. So I think it's, an, it's, a, it's a successful model in a lot of ways, um, but it shouldn't be confused with scientific research. It's really more of a way of organizing um, technology research uh, and to do it, I think, in ways that have been successful. Now, is it applicable to every domain? I think that just, you'd have to go case by case, right? I mean, it, it really depends. One of the things I would say, though, is, um, you know, we have DARPA. People like DARPA and they want to imitate it, but it's not, I mean, DARPA exists. It's still doing what it does, right? Um, a lot of the breakthrough technologies that it has um, helped, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of give, give rise to from, you know, GPS to the internet, um, it, that wasn't really the intention, right? The intention was to develop technologies that were useful for military. So in a sense, by trying to imitate DARPA to do a predetermined outcome, you're kind of not doing what DARPA does <laughs> in a way. So, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of kind of excitement about that idea, but in practice, I'm, I'm a little bit more lukewarm about whether it would actually be effective. But again, I think it depends. How can we, I guess, get more out of our science spending? There's a feel, I think it's called, it's called meta-science. I guess it's how, how we do science in this country and the incentives can we be doing that substantially differently and getting a better end result? Or have we, or have we sort of optimized it in this country? I do not think we've optimized it. Um, I think, so the short answer is yes. And we could, we could do things a lot better. Um, precisely how to do that is where things get complicated. Um, so maybe it's worth stepping back. This is what I was getting at in answer to your question about um, basic research. I think, um, I guess I'm asking: Should we should we should be changing incentives? Should we having yeah. more lotteries? Is there all the are these other ways that are different than which we currently you know distribute money? Right. Yes. And so I, I think we the kind of um, uh, established way of funding science research, if we take for instance NIH and NSF as examples, is a peer review system where you evaluate the merits of a proposal. Use you know using a peer review system uh, that, you know, get people in the relevant fields to look at it and decide, you know, does this look promising or not? And then you, 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 you know, you ultimately decide whether or not to fund it. Um, I think there's a genuine question whether that model is the most appropriate way, or at least should be the only way that we uh, fund 
science. Uh, peer review is extremely important. Uh, I think it's easy to sort of, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the limits of peer review. It's overly conservative and so forth. I think peer review is actually very, very important. For, it's hugely important for science. Whether it's the most important or the most effective way for the federal government to allocate its research funding is a different question. Um, and so in that one area, I think there is a lot of room for experimentation for other ways of uh, distributing funding. I think lotteries are interesting. Um, uh, you know, I've, I'm kind of on record uh, in favor of a modified lottery system, at least as a tool in the toolkit. Um, I think certainly not a silver bullet and they have their own problems. Um, but I think that what we do need is better evidence about what works for what purposes. And we can only get that if we inject some more experimentation into the system. We currently do things sort of, um, I wouldn't say one way, but there are certainly received ways of doing it. And the agencies like NIH and SF do study, um, this is a kind of meta science questions, um, but you know, they have an interest in, <laughs> in a certain outcome, obviously. And so I think that having more uh, institute boundary organizations, as a political scientist would call them, you know, institutions that are not just the NIH and NSF, looking at how we're doing these things and whether it's working uh, is very important. So that we have a better evidence base for making decisions about, about how we do this. Um, I think if we step back a little bit, uh, the, the, the important question, this is what I was getting earlier, is you know, what has been the effect on science of all of these infrastructures that we've built? Um, there's a kind of widespread assumption that, you know, if we just crank up the spigot with money, we're going to get more outputs. We're going to get more, you know, good science and technology. Um, but it doesn't really work that way. Um, and there are a lot of issues that sort of plague the research system, um, which really need to be looked at. I think the um, the funding models is one. The other thing that I alluded to earlier is the uh, the bureaucratization of science. So uh, ghastly percentages of researchers' time is goes to uh, essentially doing paperwork to comply with various aspects of you know kind of regulations and rules that come from the funding sources that they have. Some of this is on the federal government side, some of it's within the universities themselves. Um, that's a real problem. Um, I mentioned the replication crisis. Um, I think that we need to be thinking more carefully about how to improve uh, the, you know, so the, get rid of the kinks in the system before we just flow more money through it. I'm not opposed to increasing federal spending on science uh, by any stretch, uh, but there's there's too little attention given to that. The two bills we were talking about are, are an example. The Senate bill mentions almost nothing about any of these kinds of meta science questions. Um, the geographic diversity issue is the only kind of meta science issue in there if you wanna include it. Uh, the House is a little better. Um, there's some discussion of replication in the, um, the House bill. Uh, it's pretty limited. Um, it's mostly in the kind of computer science field. Uh, and th to me, this is very unfortunate because there's a, there are longstanding debates and uh, lots of scholarship on these questions um, that we could be drawing on in thinking about ways to reform our scientific institutions. Do you think the current push for expanding federal investment is a singular moment and will be on cruise control after this moment? Or do you think because of concerns about long-term economic growth and geopolitical concerns about China, that this is the beginning of an extended period of ramping up science funding? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I, I could, could certainly make the case for you know, coming out of COVID, um, you know, a lot of the other factors that you mentioned, there's competition with China. There are a lot of kind of uh, sort of perfect storm of forces that 
sort of incentivize uh, people in Congress to want to increase federal R&D spending. Um, whether that will happen, even now, I mean, I think what happens, you know, we'll have to wait and see, um, you know, whether this is going to recur, I just, I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, I think it's, if again, step back a little bit, federal R&D spending always goes up. Um, and, you know, there is this sort of scientists are always complaining about insufficient funding. And uh, I'm sympathetic. But on the other hand, if you do look at overall trends, science funding is, you know, it goes up. Um, the question is, where is it going up? How much? Um, and there are periods in re recent history around the turn of the, uh, the millennium um, when spending has gone up quite a bit, doubling of the NIH budget, for example. Um, so certainly not um, out of the realm of the possible that we could have really significant uh, federal investments, um, maybe now or in the future. What I don't think is likely is a fundamental shift whereby the federal government becomes the principal funder of R&D. That was the case in the post-war decades. Uh, the high point was 1964. The federal government, uh, I believe it was close to 70% of all U.S. R&D spending was federal government. It's basically flipped now um, with the private sector taking the lead. It's worth noting that overall U.S. R&D spending is extremely high. Uh, it's you know, comparable to that um, high point in the 60s. It's just that it's the kind of ratio of federal private is yes, flipped. Yeah. Now, I, there's a question about whether that's good. That certainly had impacts on, on you know, the, the private sector tends to be more interested in applied research and development uh, by a lot. Um, you know, so that's skewed the overall priorities of the US R&D uh, uh, system. Um, but it's not like, like we have lots of funding <laughs> and, and, and federal funding is also pretty significant. Um, will it, which a lot of uh, our uh, sort of science technology policy uh, scholars and advocates would like, Will it flip back the other way? It's, that seems very unlikely because the numbers would be <laughs> really quite staggering. Um, but it does seem to be a moment when there is bipartisan interest in increasing funding. Again, I don't want to exaggerate how exceptional that is because you know doubling of the NIH budget. I mean, imagine if we did that today. That would that would be a, like a one hundred billion dollar uh, budget for the NIH. Like that would be quite significant. Um, uh, you know, so. I think we are in a moment that's like that, where there's this bipartisan appetite. I don't know how long it will last, uh, but I, I'm skeptical that it will fundamentally change um, the current uh, sort of R&D system. Hey, Tony, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me.